good evening and uh, welcome. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce this evening's debate about the definition of or what constitutes Britishness. It's been organized by the Migration Studies Unit, and the butterfly is their symbol, and could not come at a more opportune moment when the debate about Britishness is intense in the public domain. I often ask students on a course I teach on globalization and democracy to spend 30 seconds listing five global brands and then five features of their national culture. Of course, they can all list five global brands in, you know, in three seconds. But when it comes to listing five features of the national culture, you find something interesting. that The Americans, the French, and the Chinese, for example, are very good at it. But the British, the Brits, they sit down and they wonder they wonder what the question is frankly all about. Is it about cricket, the monarchy? What exactly is it about? At least tonight we begin with a very clear question, what is Britishness? As the composition of British society changes as a result of devolution and constitutional change on the one side, internal changes on the one side, and migration, the integration into Europe and transnational links on the other, Ideas about the notion of our identity or Britishness and its relevance are clearly changing and are going to change. With us this evening to address this uh, pressing issue are uh, Professor Sir Bernard Crick and Professor Anne Phillips. Sir Bernard Crick is Emeritus Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College London. He was advisor to the Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock during the 1980s, and in 1997 he was appointed by the then Home Secretary David Blunkett to lead an advisory group on citizenship education. In that capacity, he published in 2004 a volume called Life in the United Kingdom, The Journey to Citizenship. It's this book that now forms the basis of the UK citizenship exam, which all those seeking to naturalize as British citizens must pass for admission. Anne Phillips has had a long and distinguished academic career. She's now professor of political and gender theory here at the LSE. Among her many books are The Politics of Presence, Which Equalities Matter, and most recently, the well-received and much-admired Multiculturalism Without Culture. Thank you both for agreeing to be here this evening. Now, the rules will be as follows. Each speaker will speak for 20 minutes. And those who know that I, as I chair, I, chair, I usually keep, we keep the timing for 20 minutes. And uh, then we'll have an opportunity to respond to each other. And once that, is, that exchange has taken place, of course, the floor will be open for some questions. So please join me to begin with in giving both our speakers a warm welcome. And Professor Crick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in the revamped old theatre. I haven't um, spoken in the old theatre since 1957, when I used to do the, uh, the first year government course for evening students, because I always admired the evening students, the mature students, more than the straight from schools turning universities into holiday camps. Well, that was, you know, one of my provocations in those days. Um, I thank you, David, for your introduction. You are actually conflating two episodes. I did the committee that brought citizenship into schools, but then I 
foolishly or fondly followed Blanket when he moved into the Home Office and then chaired the committee that brought in the new regime for immigrants. This, I hasten to say, was Blanket the good rather than Blanket the bad or Blanket the foolish. Blanket very bad on asylum, you know, because the party had to carry the Daily Mail and the Sun with it. Oh, my God. I don't know why I should have taken them head on. Uh, but anyway, he was very, very supportive of support for new immigrants wanting to become citizens. Well, British identity, gosh, I'm going to say that it's, there is a sense in which it is strong, but it is also much, much narrower than most people think. And we are, of course, an exception um, to the common nationalist belief that every nation should constitute a state and that a state is weaker if it is multicultural. So may I take a step backwards intellectually but not politically to consider how complex was the British sense of identity even before the issues and problems raised by post-war immigration, power, loss of power and worries about Europe. We, were we not a, always a pluralistic society pretending to be an homogeneous and unitary state for fairly obvious political purposes in the 18th, 19th and much of the 20th century, the obvious political purpose trying to hold the United Kingdom together at all, first of all with Scotland in the 18th century, then with Ireland in the 19th and early 20th, less successfully. The Welsh never seemed to want, wanted to go their own way in those days, and I don't think they do now as long as the language is secure. The culture and the nation are more important than institutional independence. Are there any Welsh men or women here? Well, that's provocation. Yes, all right. But my children are half Welsh, so I know that. But this mask of a unitary state and a unitary culture, I think, has grown into our skin. And the reasons for wearing it have abated and have had some left some uncertainties in the new situation. The majority of the we, of course, in numbers are English. But perhaps the English are, most are the most confused about their identity. Are they British or English? Or shouldn't all the British be English? They, we, feel that their identity is under threat. Or so newspaper editors say. I'm not so sure whether most people feel that at all. Some research suggests that most people are not worried about their identities at all. And Except it's a jolly good subject for academic theses at the moment. It's really the fashion of the year. It's replaced nationalism in, for PhDs. But don't embark on one. There'll be a new fashion before you get into it, I think. Apologies to those who are already embarked, but it'll be very difficult to find anything new to say. Bernard, stop it. Come on, get back to the point. Certainly there is a minimal demand in any country that immigrants should be expected to obey and broadly accept the laws and civic culture, in this case British. But it is a quite unwarranted assumption 
morally and needless politically for them to embrace the whole culture in which in the majority case is after all English <laughs> um, may I begin as is customary with immigrant writers and I'm, a 20, I'm an immigrant to Scotland and the Scottish cause of 20 years standing um, may I begin with a personal account you see of my own origin that's how most of the recent literature by immigrants begin my name is probably of Danish origin and most cricks seem to cluster in East Anglia the old area of the Dane law so not strictly Anglo-Saxon as a black British friend calmly calls me and as an English migrant to Scotland I'm unusually aware of being a state which has no agreed colloquial name England, Britain Britain proper, proper, properly only the name of a province of the Roman Empire at some time ago Great Britain or the United Kingdom our passports call us citizens of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland but my father's passport wouldn't have had Northern in front of it there but what do we old Brits or honorary Anglo-Saxons reply when faced by that existential epistemological question in foreign hotel registers nationality if that question is meant to establish legal citizenship then British is correct and is I suspect instinctively used by all new British say the post 1953 immigrants but moving among old Brits it is the least used for a people as distinct for goods bought in shops or in the Prime Minister's oratory extolling and demanding national unity and Britishness for electoral purposes I'll come back to that um, after all British is more widely used by people like Australians and Ulster Protestants in the shortened form of Brits usually with a common expletive adjective in front of it um, rather than British many write uh, Scottish or Welsh uh, in that hotel register the question after all does ask for nationality and not for citizenship most hotel registers make a nationalistic assumption but those with an address in Northern Ireland by the way write British and one knows that certainly they are Protestant Unionists or if they write Irish then they are Catholics um, the few who, who pedantically write citizens of the United Kingdom are inhabitants of Northern Ireland who can't make up their mind the majority of my fellow English of course write English the majority of the United Kingdom passport holders are English but I have a strong suspicion that many write English not as an assertion of nationality and identity as do the others but out of a common mistaken belief shared by much of the outside world that English is an adjective corresponding to citizen of the United Kingdom this annoys me personally because my children are half Welsh I live in Edinburgh and I was once a frequent concerned visitor to Northern Ireland 
And the finest honor I've ever had was to be called by the Reverend Ian Paisley, that meddling professor. I said meddling, not middling, yes. We are more, in the United Kingdom, more like Belgium, Canada, India, or the Czechoslovakia as was, than like India or France, or modern Germany, as distinct from 19th century Germany. And I rather like it that way. There's a saying that variety is the spice of life. But while a friend's children studied Scottish history in school, I sadly note that south of the border, the histories are still almost entirely Anglo-centric. Well, there's been some change among professional historians, but that's only in the last ten years. Books like Christian Coomer's The Making of English Identity, Robert Cole's The Identity of England, Richard Waite's Patriots, National Identity in Britain, 1940 onwards, and Hugh Kearney's pioneering the British Isles, a history of four nations, which he said you had to study interconnections, not simply separateness, but every one of them has been affected by the others, just as we are beginning to be affected by the new immigrants, and the new immigrants are, of course, being affected by us. Perfectly normal social processes, full of injustices and rough edges, but in the broad, normal social processes. But am I really talking about the British, if you want me to talk about tonight, or the English? The Scots, two sorts of Welsh and two sorts of Irish, certainly have problems and grievances, but do they really have a crisis of identity as distinct from grievances in the sense that, as the popular press believes, the English do? partly because the popular press editors and their readers confuse, as I've said, Englishness with Britishness. The Scots certainly have a much more secure sense of being Scots and British than most English have of being English and British. And why hitherto have so few serious scholars and writers until very recently addressed themselves to the question of English identity? which I think is a real question and possibly some of the problems arise because this has not been sufficiently addressed in the manner that a Scots or a Welsh writer could address it and still be firmly part of the United Kingdom. I think the answer must be the historical reality, as I've said, that part of the question of holding the United Kingdom together historically for nearly three centuries has had been an almost deliberate suppression by English political leaders of a specifically English nationalism. You can find characteristics in literature, in the novel, but you can't find them in the public oratory of leading political figures until, oh dear, far too recently, indeed embarrassingly recently. Now, this deliberate suppression of English nationalism, um, to historians present, I would just mutter 1848 when Europe was bursting with attempts to establish national identity. You can't find anything like that 
happening in England at that time. In Ireland, by God, yes, but not here. But there are two sides to this coin. Was this famous self-confidence or arrogance, perhaps, taking things for granted of the English, not merely condescending to foreigners, but also to the other nations of the British Isles, often forgetful of their presence, pride and peculiarities, as when Thatcher, marvellously, twice in Scotland, invented a new part of the realm called Here in England, oh sorry, I mean Scotland. But the Here in England, I'm sorry, I mean Scotland um, hasn't, hadn't got much institutional reality at that time. But there was also a tradition of the old English governing class of statecraft, the old Tories of statecraft, says the socialist, of a tradition of conciliation and compromise, um, ranting that all Britishness is tainted by imperialism, somehow misses the point that Tocqueville long ago saw in his democracy in America the great differences in governing practices of the French and British empires. Of course we practice divide and rule in India, but divisions were there already, and perhaps one dares to say, provocatively, how much more civilized than the French traditions of central control and la mission civilatrice. There was never an English attempt to anglicize Scotland, nor a determined attempt to anglicize India. Any explicit state cult of English nationalism in the 19th century, as I say, would have been counterproductive at a time when nationalism was sweeping elsewhere throughout Europe. We always admired, like the new left in the 60s and 70s, other people's nationalism, but we didn't believe we had it ourselves. But those of you, this is a very English remark, who read Wind in the Willows may remember that when Mole at last comes into Water Rat's home, he sees the bust of Mazzini on the mantelpiece. Of course, of course, of course. The old Tories understood well that since 1688 the main business of government had been holding the new United Kingdom together and for that purpose the English ideology of parliamentary sovereignty arose. Linda Colley's brilliant book Britain's Forging the Nation was about the Hanoverian attempt to create an overriding sense of British national identity. No more English and no more Scots. We would be all Britons. It sort of lasted for a while, but the odd thing is, despite all the evidence she cited from high literature and parliamentary debates, I, I've never been able to find a single folk song other than singing about old Scotland or old England. Don't give me rule Britannia, that was a government-sponsored theatre song, a deliberate piece of propaganda. Um, it takes... Oh yes, I'm running out of time, so I'll lift my nose from the careful script. I think it takes, provocatively, an ignorant follower, a um, foreigner, foreigner, an ignorant foreigner, you see, to start talking about 
the British novel or British music or British folk song and more British poetry. We talk about English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish and we are able reasonably to differentiate. And at the 11th hour I use my absolute knockdown argument on this point. Consider FIFA. Just consider FIFA for a moment. Why on earth do they allow the United Kingdom to field four different national teams? If only we could field one team, we would defeat the world. Well, perhaps we drew up the rules originally, but nobody has cared to change its rules. I think, you may think I've been labouring an obvious point, but I do point, as Michael Parrick and others have um, pointed out many times, several times, that most of the new immigrants call themselves, well, what will they call themselves? Asians, Muslims, Hindus, but British Asians, British Muslims, British Hindus, very, very rarely do they say English, because this would imply, I think, swallowing the culture. A little bit less so in Scotland, where you can do a sort of treble identity as a new immigrant. They feel more warmly welcomed, or that is a Scottish belief anyway, but it rubs off on them. So, Scottish and Welsh, I, I, I mean, sorry, sorry, Scottish, British and Irish. Well, just lastly, why on earth is this sudden outbreak of trying to define Britishness. I don't think it needs defining at all. The old moderate left-winger, Bernard here, proclaims himself as half Oakshotian on this point. Britishness is a matter of tradition, of habit, of sentiment. If you try and define it, it's what Oakshot would have called an arrest of experience. The trouble is it keeps on changing. And the notion of any, any attempt to define a nationality is going to last about a generation. Nonetheless, in sort of Wittgensteinian terms, there is a core of meaning, but it's a core of meaning based on tradition, memory and sentiment, and that you gain not by being tutored in Britishness in order to become a citizen. In order to become a citizen, you should sign up to some kind of civic and democratic agenda but it's something you gain by living in a country and being well treated. Let me just read the horror. I haven't got time to read several examples of the horror, but um, there was a draft mission statement for a conference in 2005. That's when all this nonsense began, hosted by His Majesty's Treasury that Brown addressed and the, as the Scots would say, the slogan for that conference was this. How British do we feel? What do we mean by Britishness? These questions are increasingly important in defining a shared purpose across all of our society. The strength of our communities, the way we understand diversity, the vigour of our public services and our commercial competitiveness. Good God. All rest on a sense of what Britishness is and how it has shared goals. 
I think it's a fundamental philosophical mistake here, this talk about nations having purposes, teleological purposes. Or, 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 or rather, it's very obvious, very often the language, as in Parnell's, the inevitable march of nationalism, is the language of an oppressed nation, but it's but is not the language of a nation that, with all the troubles, with all the faults, with all the injustices, with all the disappointments of recent years, lives within its own skin and I don't think is very worried about this question and I think the government is playing it for a popular reception in the popular press but I've spent most of today trying to read Lord Lord Goldsman's report in a hurry and the popular press in the last two days all guessed it would be demanding tests of Britishness and actually it doesn't although Brown's green paper of two or three weeks ago does say on the lines of the quotation I've read that we need a greater sense of Britishness. I think he must feel the need to convince the English public that he's not Scots, which I think is, you know, a bit difficult. Okay, well, I, um, I find notions of Britishness very difficult, and I find the kind of hotel register question almost impossible to answer. If you say you're English, then, of course, as Bernard suggests, you give the impression that you've forgotten the existence of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Uh, if you say you're British, to me, that kind of immediately evokes both the notion of Great Britain, and I know that's just meant to be a geographical term, but you think, great? Why great? Uh, or it, it evokes notions of the British Empire, and both of those kind of cause me problems. And then, of course, if you say you're from the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, you've got the embarrassment of having to remind everyone that you live under a rather antiquated monarchy, quite apart from also glossing over the uh, difficult relationship with Ireland. Uh, but anyway, I think, you know, I mean, I can live with those complications about... Uh, the naming of country and nationality. Uh, The more testing issue for me uh, is the current language of British values, um, which has been closely bound up with um, denunciations of multiculturalism uh, and often has the effect of claiming as British values that transcend national identity. So I, I want basically to concentrate on saying a few things about that. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that not just in Britain, but across Europe as a whole, that the discourse and practices of multiculturalism are in crisis. Uh, politicians compete to stress the importance of a strong sense of national identity um, and seem increasingly to regard diversity as a problem rather than as a resource. The language of integration and social cohesion, which actually a few years ago was felt to be rather objectionably close to notions of assimilation, but that language of integration and social cohesion increasingly dominates debate. Newspaper articles call on immigrants to confirm that they've opted for the values of their... um, Can I just check where my second page of my speech is? Remember it, I guess, if I can get it. Sabotage. Sabotage. Right, fine. Uh, Okay, right. (laughs) 
Governments insist on applicants for citizenship undergoing courses in the national language and what are said to be the host country values. Um, I, there's, a, there's a quote from um, Sivanandan, director of the Institute of Race Relations, that I just wanted to give, which, which I don't think, I mean, I don't think he's alone in linking this kind of retreat from multiculturalism to a new stridency about assimilation. So this is a quote from Sivanandan. The mounting campaign against multiculturalism by politicians, pundits and the press, both here in Britain and across Europe, is neither innocent nor innocuous. It is a prelude to a policy that deems there is one dominant culture, one unique set of values, one nativist loyalty, a policy of assimilation. I think previous policy pronouncements, and I suppose I'm thinking back you know, maybe, you know, five, ten years ago in Britain or, for example, in the Netherlands, often stressed respect for cultural diversity, um, implying, though perhaps not always stating, a degree of kind of mutual adjustment between uh, majority and minority, cult minority groups. In contrast to that, the focus on integration and cohesion does seem, as Sivanandan suggests, does seem to conjure up a pre-existing set of values that characterizes each host society. And it then calls on people from minority cultural groups to adapt themselves more actively to this. One point, one point I think to note about this is that that move often means an exaggerated perception of the gap between so-called majority and so-called minority cultures. Um, I think one standard justification for citizenship training, for example, has been the importance of familiarizing new migrants with core principles of democracy, toleration, and equality. And there's a very clear implication in that, that these will not be familiar values to the new immigrants. Now, it's been argued by uh, Christian Jopke, among others, um, that we shouldn't worry too much about this because the kind of uh, national identities that are being affirmed in this process aren't particularly British or Dutch or German, uh, but comprise a generic liberal democracy uh, that's detached from any specifically ethnic identity. Um, so, I mean, when the British government, for example, embarked on its kind of um, new ruminations about national identity, uh, including in the uh, 2002 white paper on uh, secure borders, safe haven. Uh, it stressed the importance of newcomers developing a sense of belonging and identity uh, that could be passed on from generation to generation. But when, when put to the task of spelling out uh, what, um, what were the fundamental tenets of British citizenship, I mean, rather like David's students, had a great deal of difficulty coming up with these, uh, and basically fell back on rather general values, uh, notions about respecting human rights and freedoms, uphold, upholding democratic values, observing laws faithfully. Well, it's hard to imagine any country that wouldn't kind of regard that as kind of one of its kind of values and fulfilling duties and obligations. And a, a parallel attempt to define uh, the dominant culture in Germany uh, ended up with the norms of the Constitution, the idea of Europe and equality of women. Um, now, I think Jopke is right. That doesn't look like a retreat from a kind of previous multiculturalism to a very kind of ethnicized kind of monoculturalism. Um, you know, and, and in, that, in the optimistic reading, we therefore needn't fear this as a rise of a new nationalism or in any sense a kind of threat to minority rights. We can see it as a, as a de-ethnicized national identity that no longer rests on substantive cultural norms. 
That's the optimistic reading. I mean, my own reading of the movement is more troubled um, because I think it kind of invokes a stereotypical contrast between usually Western and non-Western values that I think replays monoculturalism in a more political guise. And if you think about what's going on here, I mean, obviously, the generic values of respecting human rights or upholding democracy or constitutions or obeying the law, clearly these can't be claimed as specifically, you know, British or German or Dutch. Uh, But neither can they be claimed, I think, as peculiarly liberal or Western or European, as if, you know, migrants from India, for example, um, had never heard of a democratic constitution, or indeed as if asylum seekers escaping torture needed to be taught about the value of human rights. I think the idea that support for these values might end at the borders of Europe, or that those whose families have lived in Europe for generations will have imbibed them from the atmosphere while the rest of us, I mean, while recent arrivals uh, need to be taught them in civics classes, draws on and reinforces stereotypical distinctions between liberal and illiberal, modern and traditional, Western and non-Western cultures. And that doesn't, to me, ring true. I mean, I I think, actually, at the moment, it's a bit hard to represent Britain as the firm defender of human rights and freedoms when you, you know, consider the kind of power to hold suspected terrorists for up to 28 days without, without charge and proposals to extend that to 42 or when you think of the kind of very high levels of surveillance in this country, which ironically, (laughs) a level of surveillance that's very substantially increased just over the period in which um, there's been the introduction of the freedom of information legislation. The description of British values seems to me over-optimistic and empirically false. Um, The claim of these as peculiarly British values projects a world of us and them in which our values are declared to be superior. And I think if that's what's emerging as the new paradigm of national identity across Europe, uh, it is, in my view, deeply problematic. The further twist I want to sort of stress in this is the role of gender equality in these uh, new definitions of national identity that I think are going on not just in Britain but elsewhere. When countries draw up their lists of the core values uh, that must not be sacrificed to the requirements of cultural sensitivity, they refer, as you would expect, to values like democracy and toleration. Curiously, I think it's curious, uh, they almost always also include the equality of the sexes in a prominent position. Attitudes towards women are now being taken as especially significant in exposing the gap between majority and minority cultures, uh, with degrees of integration measured partly by degrees of assent to women's rights. So if you just take um, one example, the example of Denmark, uh, migrants to Denmark now have to sign a contract uh, stating that they accept the principle of gender equality uh, and that they recognise that female circumcision and forced marriage are illegal in Denmark. Uh, and gender equality is described in official documents as an essential part of Danish society and a core value. Now, um, that focus on gender issues is is not peculiar to Denmark. And when I say it's curious, it's not that I uh, am sorry that, you know, gender equality is being regarded as a core European value. Uh, But there's something kind of quite, quite kind of interesting that's been going on, I think, in this kind of recent development. And if you think about what's commonly offered in both popular and policy discourse as evidence of 
conflicts over fundamental values. I think issues relating to the treatment of girls and women figure very large. So uh, women wearing hijab, uh, girls um, subjected to genital cutting, uh, young people forced by their families to marry um, unknown and unwanted spouses. And just recently there's been there's a report that's just been published today which has indicated the, the, that the level of the amount of forced marriage uh, taking place in this country is uh, very much higher than had previously been acknowledged. Uh, young women murdered by family members uh, for behavior said to offend principles of community honor. Um, the repudiation of homosexuality by leading Muslim clerics is sometimes cited as a further example of the, uh, the sort of fundamental conflict of values, uh, but actually much less so. And it seems to me that's that may be because it can be more readily assumed that we, host country, uh, do all support gender equality, uh, but not so easily asserted that we all regard homosexuality as fine. Now, in the recent uh, discussion of uh, Sharia law in Britain, prompted by the uh, somewhat unwise remarks of the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, the unequal treatment of women and men in Sharia law was, um, played, played quite a significant role in the, in the subsequent debate. And Gordon, ba Gordon Brown was quoted as uh, saying, in a kind of like settlement of these issues, uh, that British laws must be based on British values. Now, that's the kind of use of Britishness and British values that worries me. Uh, it seems to me that the reason why the law should treat men and women as equals isn't because it's British to do this, uh, you, know, as if, you know, as if we'd put up with a bit of inequality um, so long as we could show that that was part of a long-standing British tradition. Um, the reason why the law should treat men and women as equals uh, is because laws should be based on principles of equality. And claiming these as British values, I think, simultaneously understates the importance of the values and overstates the importance of Britain. It also projects uh, a rather patronizing image of you know, mostly non-European societies as so far untouched by ideas of gender equality um, and lacking any history of feminist mobilization. Um, now, I mean, perhaps just, just to clarify, um, uh, I mean, in terms of the kind of the developments that Bernard Crick, for example, has been associated with, um, I'm not particularly objecting to the introduction of a citizenship test, though initially I did object. I, initially I thought it was kind of outrageous that new citizens had to kind of reach a level of knowledge about the British Constitution that uh, most of us don't, uh, don't achieve. I mean, I did try out um, a sample citizenship test, and I did pass it, but I did think I needed my politics A-level to have done that. Um, but anyway, um, I don't particularly object to the introduction of citizenship tests. I also don't object to the more demanding requirement uh, that new citizens uh, you know, uh, become uh, fluent in the language of, of their country. Uh, though I think, as I know does Bernard, uh, that social integration is better enabled by providing um, free language courses uh, than simply the more punitive route of telling people they've got to pass a test. Um, I'm also not saying that feelings of belonging are unimportant uh, or that we wouldn't all prefer to live in a society where we felt connected with the people around us. What I'm really objecting to is the claiming as British of values that seem to me to have a far wider purchase. I also kind of rather object to the kind of attempts to manage identity 
uh, through telling people what is or isn't British or, or by policies of cultural intervention uh, that try to conjure up identities from above uh, or what I think are rather silly ideas like introducing a national day. And just, just a kind of final comment. Um, I'm frequently struck by the lack of connection between two contemporary discourses about social disintegration. On the one hand, there's this agonizing about the loss of a sense of British identity, uh, always linked by implication to the specter of too much immigration and too much cultural diversity. On the other side, there's the moral panic about the disaffection and alienation of young people uh, leaving school with few qualifications, facing a lifetime of low-paid and unskilled employment in a society that increasingly values people according to how much they earn and what they consume. Now, most of those young people won't be taking any citizenship test. Uh, they may or may not have a strong sense of their own Britishness, uh, but I doubt if they're going to be you know, drawn back in, reintegrated into society uh, by, you know, by any kind of celebration of what it means to be British. I mean, that's the particular failure of social cohesion that most worries me at the moment. Um, and I don't think that the talk about Britishness goes anywhere near addressing it. Well, I was going to start by giving each speaker an opportunity to respond to each other because that's say a debate. But actually, as is obvious, there's a high degree of overlap between the two of you. And um, that's perhaps uh, uh, clearer than the differences. Do you want to take, to take a moment to, to, to uh, either affirm or discuss with Anne one or two points? Yes, just, just a couple of... Oh, can you hear me? Yes, Lord Rosebery was once speaking on the floor of the House of Lords and somebody said, speak up. And he said, I would if I thought that anyone were listening. But, um, uh, yes, I, I agree with nearly everything Anne has said, except I would draw a distinction between political culture and uh, um, other values in cultures. And I do think historically, though it isn't popular to say, but I think it is true, that, the, that before the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and when in the 19th century English parliamentary government began to move towards being democratic, this was pretty unique in the world. And that nearly all the nationalist leaders in what one calls the Third World in a broad sense, um, learnt their politics in Paris, London, or at one time in the United States. I can't find this kind of Greco-Romano Republican culture anywhere else in the world any more than science came out of the West, but took many different forms and could be adopted by anybody. And I think the kind of European invention of free politics has been widely taken up all around the world and so I can't quite agree with Anne yeah, having attended Esau classes among Somalis among people from various parts of Africa and up in 
Bradford, where after all these are not recent immigrants from Pakistan, they are poor people from the villages of Pakistan who came in, oh poor people, when there were jobs in the woolen industry. And within about 10 years of them coming in, there was no more wool. They certainly had not got any broad notion of a citizenship culture. And there are problems about this to this day. So I think there is a point in which it does need teaching, but specifically not the superiority of English, Welsh or Scottish culture or all that. But I think there is a political culture. And that's what I meant when I said that last point, when I said that I thought, but I didn't explain what I meant, that Britishness does have a strong but narrow sense. And I think rather ironically, when Brown was banging on about Britishness, two of his colleagues weren't quite listening or had a flicker of independence because Ruth Kelly, gosh, even Ruth Kelly and Liam Byrne wrote a Fabian pamphlet last year with a nice title, A Common Place, and they said Britishness is like an umbrella under which different identities can shelter. And I'm sure they thought of it as a constitutional political umbrella rather than a cultural one. Thank you. So, Anne, um, do you go along with that completely? Because the point that seems to be emphasised is that there is something, distinctiveness as well, about a British political culture which needs oh. to be taught, the publicness of that, the, the concepts which define it. Whereas you were placing a greater emphasis on it, to the extent that we must teach citizenship values, we need to recognise these aren't just British, but more, more universal values. No, well, wait a minute. I said the French and American revolutions, so I think these are a common set of values that it's perfectly reasonable to call British because we are in British, but they are not unique. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, uh, I think I would probably take issue with Bernard about the extent to which Europe is the kind of the... Um, sort of the originator of, of these values and I think certainly the, the points at which notions about democracy or rights actually were, were extended uh, was very often in kind of challenges to, for example, the uh, authority of Britain in the British Empire. But having said that, um, I, mean, my, my, I mean, I think the... I think it's difficult. If you, go, if, you, if you turn to the question of education, I think it's difficult to teach values in, say, schools. <laughs> but uh, I, 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 do, I do think that kind of issues like, you know, equality, democracy, human rights, uh, you know, anti-discrimination, uh, you know, that one would hope that these, these are values that can actually be imparted uh, through education at both school level and, uh, and elsewhere. Though, as I say, I'm kind of rather sceptical about exactly how you do that. What, so it's not the kind of the, the need to, um, for people to you know, imbibe those values that I'm concerned about, but that that should be thoroughly detached, in my view, uh, from notions about Britishness. Sure. And I don't think we're You really can't teach values directly, but you yeah. can exemplify yeah. them. Yeah. The teacher who tries to teach freedom and doesn't let the class get a bloody word in edgeways <laughs> is destroying their own lesson, they have to put up with a bit of anarchy, a bit of irrelevance, because this, this is freedom and this is exemplary. And, uh, I think that, actually, I, mean, I won't pursue the historical argument because it is a historical argument, but I really can't find in... 
Japan, India, or Southeast Asia, you know, anything that is a premonition of a democratic culture, but I don't think that reflects on those cultures at all, or in the Middle East, after all, you know, the people who are religious, says the Vice President of the British Humanist, who is also a friend of the Archbishop, because we've talked about multiculturalism together. I think he's a good man, but still, that's an irrelevance. Um, um, you know, well, I mean, I mean, that can be said, and incidentally, my committee that brought in the report, the old and the new, that led to the new regulations, we used the concept multiculturalism absolutely explicitly and absolutely clearly. Um, the new Brits and the old Brits, the men and the women, were 50-50 of each on this committee. I was more politically correct than I believe was possible that it so worked out that way. Um, you know, we didn't have a moment's thought that multiculturalism was not a description of British society as it actually was. And indeed, even before the Windrush, Scots and English, Welsh and English, etc., etc., the Jewish immigration of the 1890s and 1900s. So, so. Um, well, uh, there's enough that's been said uh, by the speakers that they, in, in terms of both what they have in common, in terms of both the arguments they presented to get one's teeth into, I think. And Bernard, we usually take questions, at least I usually take questions in clusters of five, so the audience has an opportunity to, to get a number of issues out. So let me, uh, there are mics, are there, top and bottom? So let's see who would like initially to respond. Yes, please. Perhaps you could say who you are and then put the point. All right. um, Eva Maria Nag, Centre for International Studies. Uh, Professor Phillips, just to comment and add a question I have. Um, uh, my comment is I, I think you perhaps overstate the degree of coherence between um, European and maybe non-European values. And I, as, um, as I research into non-Western uh, political theories, I must say that I do sense there's a lot of deep diversity, but not, say, particularly between... Uh, Western and non-Western values, but within the West and within the non-West. In other words, I think deep difference runs across groups rather than between them. Um, look, bearing this in mind, um, what I, the answer I'm now looking for within this debate, and I was wondering whether you could help me on this, oh. is what I sense is that this is, this is about definitions of democracy. So whether it's radical democracy or sort of representative democracy that's going on, and I think the conceptualizations are different. So what I see the debate as being is a debate for, of political leadership and intellectual hegemony. And I was wondering whether you have an idea of whether this is a social class or a political class that is driving this debate and in a particular direction. Um, so who stands to gain from it is really the question I have. Thank you. Yes. Downstairs. Anyone else here? Yeah. Gentleman back. Uh, well, my name is Perry Berg. I was just going to ask, the, the, the issue you made about the, the values like things like equality under the law or in terms of gender or race or diversity, sometimes that seems confusing because obviously that's a core value, but you, know, you could argue that even in Christianity uh, there are certain elements that are, are male bias and you know, there are you know, England or Britain or United Kingdom is you know, Christian in foundation at least. And then also things of diversity, like the no notion of uh, police stop and search and the disparity between the way blacks and Asians are stopped and those, and as opposed to whites. These are 
inequalities that we are telling immigrants they need to be tolerant and fair, yet even within the British society there are these disparities that still exist in its own um, system. It's almost like we're telling them to behave, but we ourselves are not necessarily behaving or abiding by our own laws. Um, Yes. Yeah, we'll come up. Just, Just one sec. A bit closer to Mike, closer to your mouth. 50 years ago, and uh, at that time, I can remember as chairman of the Overseas Students Reception Committee, there was some diffidence on the part of uh, people I sought to recruit to uh, give me a good mix of students who were uh, on that committee. And it was some time before they owned to where they came from and what, if they came from India, what their caste was. But nowadays, Britishness smacks to me very much of rallying to the flag and about motive values. And the people I meet up with in the street have no problem at all with being asked, you know, where are you from? And a student uh, friend of mine whose wife had surgery at Guy's Hospital told me that he had done a little survey. She was in there for a week, and he'd got a list of 24 different countries. She'd been shunted around rather a lot. And some of them bridled a little at being asked the question. He said, no, no, I can ask this question. I'm from Wales, you know, and that established his credentials. But nowadays, in London, so many of the people in shops and the people you have dealings with, you know, talk with an accent, and they don't mind at all saying what country they are from. And, you know, that establishes a, a standing a rapport in the way which Britishness doesn't, because Britishness is rallying to the flag and my country right or wrong and God help us you know, uh, the monarchy you know, things that are okay. largely outmoded Thank you uh, Yes, yes. gentlemen up here two more and then we'll come back to you Yes Thanks, uh, Usman Khan um, I'm involved with an organisation that's um, trying to measure integration um, and a number, of, a number of EU member states, including Britain, is trying to not just define Britishness uh, or the core values around any nationality, but actually to measure where immigrants are coming into the country, that they are integrating. It's a real challenge, and I just wondered if, if either of the panellists would be able to comment on whether they feel it is possible to measure integration, especially in terms of positive indicators. It seems to be easier to measure negative indicators where people are not integrating rather than where they are positively integrating. Thank you. And finally, there was one more question up there. Yes. Yes, no, fine. One more, Bernard. At least we begin to know what the audience thinks. Yes. So I just wanted to take uh, issue with Professor Phillips' point about coherence between Western and non-Western values. I think you're missing the point, Professor, that when migrants come to a country, they're looking for something di- They obviously wouldn't come to a country if they weren't searching for something different than what they would find in their own country. I mean, I think, I mean, taking your point, Professor Crick, my, I'm half Irish, half Jewish, and I couldn't feel more British. And I think, and I have a girlfriend who's British Sri Lankan, and she couldn't feel more British. And I think the point uh, really to be made is this, that... You know, you come to a country, you're looking for different values, a different way of life, maybe different opportunities than you would have in your own country. Thank you. Okay. Sorry to have uh, let it run, but it's an interesting set of issues. Would you, Bernard, would you like to start? Okay. Yes, 
Yes, that last point is a puzzling one, isn't it? The motives of why people come, because sometimes it's out of sheer poverty. And I remember there was a lecturer in economic history here 20 or 30 years ago who collected immigrant letters to the United States and one common thing of people writing back was this is a country in which one can better oneself and I think that had both a moral and well it had both a political and an economic connotation to it um, no, but that's interesting what you say and after all if you're half Jewish and you're half Irish well I think being British as well is a you know, fairly useful um, uh, uh, um, kind, of, kind of synthesis. Um, the question before that you know, said, well, isn't there now a wave of sort of um, you know, rather rabid British nationalism? I'm not sure about that because I think what neither of us said, and I certainly should have said because I've been thinking about it quite a lot, recently or only just glanced off it, the revival of interest in Englishness you know the football cup a few years ago and the sudden outburst of Union Jacks and all that well I, I mean this has left me very unfashed at all, I mean it's taken the Union Jack away from the BMP for one thing and I think it's perfectly legitimate for the English to try and identify or feel a sense of identify, feel a sense of Englishness, as the Scots and Welsh feel senses of Scottish and Welshness. And I don't think that is competitive or is superiority. Indeed, it is Britishness that is the claim of superiority, not the Englishness. That's why I read that little quote a moment ago about Britishness being an umbrella. I think it's a general belief in a civic culture, general belief in the laws oh dear one has to say the crown because unlike in the United States we don't have a constitution so the crown is a kind of symbol of unity my friend says he boasting slightly Alex Salmon has kept his party in line that an independent Scotland will still be part of the Commonwealth and so the Queen will be Queen of Scotland as well as Queen of England well that seems to be prudentially a very, a very good idea um Ah, the question about ah, all right, the new citizenship, both for immigrants and for school and in schools, how shouldn't it be more radical? Yes, a radical democracy rather than uh, rather than simple democratic rights. Yes, I think it should. And we built, into, we built into the school citizenship order um, participation in the school and the community. That was built in very strongly. And we're dropping broad hints around that the country is not a citizen culture. It was a rather deferential culture and we wanted it to be. Now this is one of the things that worries me, that the government has dropped that kind of rhetoric and is suddenly going in for the... Um, Britishness rhetoric because I think a highly centralised political party in a country of 50 millions with no I'm referring to England 50 millions with no regional devolution there's no country in the world except possibly China and um, North Korea 
that has numbers of that kind without some kind of democratic revolution. You're thinking hard, so am I. You might come up with a contrary example that, um, that can possibly endure so much centralised government. I think the party that I have been in for all my life and wonder how long I can stick it any longer, whether the fight within or the get out, um, that party is so centralised in its thinking at the moment that it is having to refer, instead of a democratic rhetoric, they are now adopting this nationalistic rhetoric. Um, but if in the original citizenship report, as Sam urged, we'd gone the whole hog and said we want a more egalitarian society, we want a more racially tolerant society, we want anti-racism rather than tolerance, there would have been a hell of a political row and we wouldn't have even got the thing off the ground at all. And I was deliberately politically prudent not to attract a kind of party warfare on it and get it accepted in a rather mild manner that could grow. And I think it is growing in the hands of good teachers. If we'd been too idealistic at the beginning and talked about as I fervently believe, wanting this country to be more egalitarian. The whole thing would have been the subject of party warfare. And now knowing what we do know of Blair, which one didn't know in 1997 and 98, I think he would have vetoed it. And Blunt had had enough trouble persuading him to put citizenship into the curriculum, had to threaten resignation. Yes. Mike, I was just, just just encouraging you to speak into the mic, Bernard, not oh, to look sorry. over there, but just. Oh, oh I beg your pardon. Just, uh, just. Have you finished? Have you finished? Yes. Very good. All right. Finish my rant. Sorry. No, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, let me try and say something about uh, one or two of the other questions on the kind of the the measuring uh, integration. I'm someone who has absolutely no idea about how you go about, go about measuring anything, so I have no. Uh, practical suggestions about uh, how one would do uh, social research that would measure degrees of integration. But I, but I would say that, um, and this kind of links to my kind of final comments, that um, I do think there's a real problem that when we talk about kind of lack of integration, uh, that we're kind of, we're caught in this kind of um, conception that the problem is related to either migration or to uh, the kind of cultural diversity that has come with migration. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an enormous problem of disintegration which is class-based, right, which is to do with income inequalities. <laughs> so I think, you know, measuring integration where you focus simply on the kind of, the kind of disintegration associated with immigration already to me is, is problematic. But how you measure any kind of integration, I don't know. Um, on the question about um, Britain claiming these core values, wonderful core values of, you know, equality and, uh, you know, sort of equality between the sexes, uh, racial sort of equality and so on, when in fact there are uh, very uh, marked inequalities and injustices within a country. I mean, it, it, there's a, it seems to me there's a bit of a kind of like, there's a question about whether in a way one almost strategically goes along with the kind of the assertion of certain values being core values, because in doing so, um, it's like you can then call people's bluff. 
you know, that if kind of if people have said, well, it's a defining part of our kind of principles that we really believe in democracy and we believe in equality and you know and so on, then it's it becomes useful as part of the way in which one can further challenge the inequalities that of course remain around us. The the other side to that and the risk to that is that it becomes a rather complacent cover, which is what I think you're suggesting, that it kind of it, it sort of you know it leads people to think that there is more equality than there really is. And I think that's a kind of slightly difficult a choice to make, um, except of course that it's not us making it because we're not able to control <laughs> what these debates are. And, um, in terms of the, the question about who stands to gain from these debates, I suspect you um, have a thesis about this, um, that uh, you have a thesis about this and probably you should be telling us your thesis about who, who stands to gain from this debate. But there's, there's, there's clearly, I mean there's something that's going on that isn't just peculiar to Britain in terms of the arguments that are taking place at the, at the moment about national identity, definitions of equality, <coughs> definitions of democracy. So it's not just, I mean, there is a very, I mean, there is a very, uh, there's a local, and I think I agree with Bernard about the sense in which it's a manufactured crisis about the, the worry about English identity. There's a kind of local crisis there. But there's something kind of larger than that going on in these debates, and I, I don't have... Uh, a thesis about who stands to gain but I do think it's, a, it's an important question and then just generally on the um, on the kind of question about what, what country <laughs> what country you're from I mean there are, there are times when I mean I'm not a great admirer of the kind of stern anti-differentialist republicanism of France but I do kind of look across the channel sometimes and think how easy it would be just to say you know when somebody says what are you you could just say well I'm French um, and I think my, my own kind of like confusions and reservations about Britishness, they are partly a, 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 re, a reflection of what I think Bernard Crick was stressing, which is that this is multinational, right? And it kind of, it throws up a particular kind of complications um, about how one uh, understands or, or defines that term. Um, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yes. Um, the mic down here, please. We have time for another uh, a few questions, so I'll come around again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, you. Say who you are, and then. Um, my name is Maggie Murphy. I'm a postgraduate at LSE. Can you hear okay? Um, I, I just quite like to raise something to do with British citizenship. Um, there was a Maury poll in 1998, which asked people to identify what they saw as uh, the definition of being a good citizen. And number one and number two, I think, were um, being a good parent and respecting each other. Now, with the new government green paper on immigration, being a good citizen involves not being involved in crime, not engaging in acts of terrorism, and volunteering in your local community. Volunteering came last in all of the 18 options um, in the, in the Mori poll. Um, I'm just interested in your... Uh, in your ideas on this disconnect between what the government thinks is a good citizen um, for a migrant and perhaps what British citizens think of what is good citizenship. Interesting question. Yeah. Down here, yeah. Uh, John Picton. Um, I agree with the panel actually that Britishness uh, is not a cultural concept. However, I, I think it is a political and legal concept and I think also that that's something that we can unite around and celebrate. The, the things I have in mind are the monarchy, uh, the English common law, 
uh, adversarial democracy and also the symbolism of Westminster, the pageantry and, and the pomp. I, 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 I think those are valid and, and British. Yes, lady up here. Um, hello, good evening and thank you very much for talking today. Um, I have a quick question. Um, I was wondering what you, you talk about um, a lot about people who are second generation, um, kids of immigrants, that kind of thing. And you talk about people who are coming and taking the citizenship test. But what about people who are half and half? Like I would, um, the best description is myself. I'm half English and half Turkish. But any form about my ethnicity, I'm British. It's just easier. Um, and I was wondering where they stand in this whole discourse and debate. Thank you. Yeah, um, hello, uh, my name's Jeremy. I'm a postgraduate student. Um, my question is about citizenship education, and um, I suppose it's a more of a philosophical question. In a liberal society, should the state be promoting particular values anyway? Um, if you believe in you know, freedom, of, if you believe in uh, you know, being a good citizen, surely in a liberal society you can also be a bad citizen. And uh, I just wonder, that, that's my question, should we be doing it anyway? How bad should we be? All right. One last question. Um, anyone? Yes, at the back. Thank you. Margarita Prieto Acosta, I got my citizenship a, ma a month ago, and I'm grateful for uh, that. But I'm still seeing that um, the process is expensive, yes. and it has been extended to a resident permit. Um, this resident permit is obvious that uh, someone who comes in this condition, uh, it has been normally hard in their country of origin. And I see, with all my respect, that this extension to this test has become like a hidden way of getting more revenue to the Treasury. I would like to, your, your opinion on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, Bernard, since you're the visitor, I'm going to come to you last now, so okay. you can have the last word on everything and go to Anne first. Okay. Um, on the, I, I, mean, I, also, I mean, I'm not a kind of uh, classical liberal, but I'm, um, there is something that really troubles me about the idea of the state promoting not so much values. It really troubles me when states promote national identities. I mean, I really don't think it's the business of the state mm. to try to generate a kind of sense of national identity. National identities either emerge or they don't emerge, you know. I mean, they... Mm. Historically, that's what they've been doing for yeah. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm saying I don't think they ought to be doing it, but, you know, they may historically have been doing it. Um, and, but I think it's... Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of... Also, kind of, I mean, I worry about the kind of the. Um, I mean, when I when I sort of say I don't really know how you teach people values, that's kind of partly just a practical question about you know how on earth you know faced with an unruly class of you know 25 teenagers, you know how do you teach them what you think are kind of important values? Um, but but the kind of there's a sort of deeper philosophical question, which is whether whether that's the appropriate role for education. And obviously, if education at kind of university level, we we kind of we like to convince ourselves that we're not actually um, teaching people in a sense a particular position that they're supposed to adopt. That we're sort of we're teaching them, uh, if anything, a kind of uh, 
you know, maybe ways of looking at different sides of the question and so on. That in itself is teaching values, of course, but it's kind of, you know, trying to do it without, without pushing a particular point of view. So, I mean, I agree that there are kind of problems about this. And, um, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm tempted simply to say the state should get out of this business. I certainly think it should get out of the business of promoting national identities. Um, but I don't, in the end, think that it's appropriate to say that states should just you know, withdraw completely from any notion about um, trying to sort of uh, convey the importance of questions about democracy, equality, human rights. I think these are kind of legitimate and important tasks for, uh, um, you know, for governments to be involved in. Um, Citizenship as a kind of, yeah, I mean, I think the distinction between citizenship as a kind of, you know, political, legal rather than cultural concept is, is, is probably the way that um, many people um, now try and resolve this issue. Again, I have kind of worries with the notion of celebration to me. Why would one, you don't need to celebrate Britishness, it seems to me. I mean, you know, things are there or they're not there. I mean, and I, I sort of have, uh, you know, I mean, I think everyone is, most people are pretty attached to the place where they became adults, right? Most people have strong attachments to the places where they grew up, to the places where they kind of spent their adolescence, um, you know, and those of us who are lucky enough to carry on living in those places, um, you, know, you know, are able to kind of like, you know, enjoy that kind of attachment. But the notion of celebration, to me, um, again, I think it goes back to the question of what it is that's appropriate for states to do, which, of course, is, is also the, the, the opening question about um, the, the gap between what uh, people might say in an opinion poll or in a survey, um, what it is that for them constitutes being a good citizenship, good, good being a good citizen, and what governments are kind of trying to do when they kind of promote their own conception of citizenship. And I do think that kind of point that you made about the shift from um, the kind of the prominence of parenting to the idea of the prominence of crime is, is very kind of, um, is very remarkable. I mean, that's a really kind of uh, interesting movement in terms of uh, a kind of discrepancy or a kind of historic shift. And, you know, it's kind of, again, it, it comes back to what I think a lot of those questions are about, which is kind of, What's the role of governments in, in all of this? On the money, I, I kind of, uh, I, I don't think I'd go so far, I mean, this Bernard probably has a, a clearer sense of this. I don't think I'd go so far as to say that the government's just in the business of making extra money, but I do think that the kind of, I mean, the cost of, well, the cost of the language courses, um, you know, which, I mean, I think I'm right, if you're on benefits, you don't have to pay for them, but, but that kind of like, still excludes a lot of people um, and the cost of the actual test is, you know, is, is really kind of, you know, and, and then say so you have a family that's trying to kind of acquire citizenship. This is really a, a big burden on people. I was astonished this afternoon to find, but to my delight, in Goldsmith's report, which I expected the worst, him commenting on this question mm. and saying that the increase in the fees for somebody to be naturalized that's now about £180 cash down is a disincentive for many poor people and should be looked at by the government again. When the original report came in in Blunkett's day, 
we saw it and he used this language on platforms that it was an entitlement and enablement it's now being talked of as if it's an obstacle and as if people have to earn their citizenship well wait a minute I'm not entirely against earning citizenship if it means getting away from the I won't get into technicalities but people who think they've got enough English already to take the machine reading test my old colleagues were very cross when I said on the BBC it's become like a pub quiz um, there should be a learning element in it and one of the new proposals to define earned citizenship uh, comes to the question about measures of integration in a way because it is saying that people should have a right to an accelerated course towards citizenship if they have been a member of an English speaking voluntary body so to, yes I, I agree with um, the confusion of Anne Phillips I share this confusion how the hell does one measure um, integration well but possibly there is one I mean one, one, one measure that's actually being used on, in citizenship research for schools is whether people join voluntary groups and whether two years after school in a longitudinal study they have joined voluntary groups but let me just but that's a class thing now isn't it sorry I mean, it's basically middle class people who join voluntary groups these days I mean, yes so it's already that's problematic well yeah, sorry, sorry. well I mean it wasn't always so I mean the yeah, demise no, no, of the no, trade union sure. movement and you know, there are funny measures of voluntary groups, tontine clubs, darks clubs, an astonishing number of people do actually belong to committees, but they're not politic but they're not they don't conceive of them as being able to influence <coughs> that the even the local council, let alone their MP. But let me just end on the values question. Um, in a wicked old phrase, not this little engine. There is nothing about values in the citizenship report that my committee brought out or in the citizenship curriculum. The whole stress of it is on skills and useful knowledge and on discussion of real issues. Ouch! With advice, with advice that the kids should be allowed to choose most of those issues and a methodology that you learn about institutions by discussing problems and then wondering how they can get resolved then you go into institutions you don't talk about an imaginary British constitution or learning institutional stuff also in the citizenship the citizenship for immigrants the advice to ESOL teachers mixing language teaching with the citizenship content that's a wee bit of a bluff I was partner to this bluff because it, there's very little in it actually about citizenship a little bit in it about what are the powers of a councillor and what are the powers of an MP most of it was pitched that useful knowledge the East for people settling in the ESOL teacher says hospitals are free but you cannot just walk into a hospital you have to register with a GP what is a GP there are a lot of women doc you know, I mean they go on 
in that kind of way. I'm worried at the moment, but it's too late really to bring out this worry, but now we have closed the door against unskilled immigrants from the third world. As I said to Des Brown when he was Minister of Education, oh, I see Blair's boys have realized that there are no black poles. He, he said my sense of humor was inappropriate to a chairman of a public committee. But the door has been closed against unskilled immigrants from the third world mainly coloured immigrants, I apologise to New Zealanders present unless they're Maoris. Oh, God. Um, now, now that curriculum that my committee so well crafted with the interests of new immigrants in mind is a bit irrelevant because we'll be looking at people who've been in this country already for quite a few years. And so this is up up for grabs again and I'm hoping my old colleagues will stand up and fight to stop Brown infiltrating this against the views of education ministers by the way um, with a Britishness curriculum and there, was no, there is nothing about British values in the curriculum in the naturalisation curriculum and just two slightly comic but very real points. And so I was glad to be reminded of the 1998 um, Mori poll. I think it was Mori. Um, it was a very badly drafted thing because it really assumed that citizenship was helping old ladies and gentlemen across the street and good citizenship. And by God, I was glad of that poll because it showed that about 78% of the country of our fellow citizens who read the Sun and the Mail were in favour of citizenship because they got hold of the wrong end of the stick. What our actual report about was encouraging participation and active citizenship and I set up, I sat up all bloody night because the civil servant said, oh no, we'll proofread for you Bernard, you don't want to do this, come on, you don't want to proofread the final copy. So my suspicions were right because they had tried to take out of it most of the references to active citizens is quite true and put in and put in good citizenship and where I had a few token actives left but and where we just said citizenship they put in good citizenship this wasn't actually Blunkett's line at the time this was people thinking either that it should have been his line or that that was what number 10 wanted I think they were probably right on that but anyway they didn't dare they didn't dare contradict Blanket or myself on that so we pushed in this active citizenship thing and also I think there was a similar misunderstanding about the naturalisation curriculum because the press hailed it or some attacked it as a curriculum in Britishness and if you remember they were asking their readers for suggestions as to what questions should be asked, what was the date of Magna Carta, what were Nelson's dying words, all that kind of rubbish came in the popular papers, and we weren't even having any questions about history at all. It was all, and the BBC got it wrong, they called it a test of Britishness, and that Bernard Crick and his colleagues have brought in a curriculum on Britishness. Well, thank God they didn't read it because that was actually quite useful at the time. It stopped a real explosion, except from Melanie Phillips, 
Melanie saw through it. He said I should have said I should be removed from the corridors of Whitehall. Ha! Yes, yes, yes. No, yes she's a, good, a very, very good enemy to have. Well, uh, but those, I mean, that misunderstanding was actually quite helpful, and it's possibly helpful to this day because most of the press guessed that Goldsmith's report would be all pro-Britishness stuff. So I think, sorry, absolutely the last sentence, that you have to forgive politicians a little for being politicians. Even I can forgive Brown's rant about Britishness because I don't believe they will find any practical way of either putting it in the school's curriculum that wouldn't cause more trouble, my God, certainly in Scotland and Wales, than it's worth, or even in the immigration syllabus um, that wouldn't have the effect of lessening the numbers of existing permanent residents putting in for citizenship when they want to try and increase and encourage that number, although they've put up the cost of it so ridiculously. Well, thank you. I mean, ended on a very interesting contrast, it seems to me, between a citizenship based on, in Wittgenstein's sense, knowing how to go on versus a citizenship which is about concern with sharing substantive views, or to put it differently, teaching citizenship based on skills and local knowledge versus a set of conception of citizenship based on strict values and identities based on those values. It's a very interesting set of contrasts with very, very marked different implications, I think, uh, for education, for politics, and so on. So thank you both very much. It was both very engaging and uh, entertaining, and I think we've... It gives us all a lot to, um, to go through the rest of the evening with. So Bernard, thank you very much for your lively contribution and for your critical contribution.